0: We are in a verse by verse study in First Timothy. We've been doing this type of a series, verse by verse, and uh, we are in chapter three now. Uh, chapter three is is pretty heavy. I'm going to have to summarize a lot of things here because we could do lessons. We're actually, some of our men are going through a study by Dr. Gene Getz called Measure of a Man, and it's a book that has over 22 chapters just based on some of the qualities that he points out that that we should have, especially ministers and deacons and things like that in Timothy and in Titus, but it's called Measure of a Man. So we could take like all summer to go through this chapter if we wanted to. We're going to try to, take the next few minutes, or moments, to go through this, and we're going to see what it is that God's trying to show us. Um, Now, 1 Timothy... Paul is talking about being faithful, being faithful as a person, being faithful as a man, being faithful as a woman, boy or girl, being faithful as a church family in a crazy world. Because you remember that when, Tim, when Paul wrote this to Timothy, Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus, and Ephesus is a very, very pagan place. You think where we live, it's bad? Nothing compared to Ephesus. There was actually the temple at that time, one of the wonders of the world, with these great big pillars and everything, uh, to uh, Artemis or Diana and basically a sex goddess that the culture worshipped. So you got to understand in the church that Timothy is ministering to, there are people coming out of that kind of culture and that there are people living in, in just, just all kinds of paganism. Uh, Even in the temple where they worshipped, there were such things as temple prostitutes. They didn't know anything about family structure. They didn't know anything about God's created order. And see, God created things a certain way and in a certain order. When you do things God's way, since he's the creator, the designer, the owner, they just work better, right? You know, it's kind of like when you're trying to put something together, men, we're picking on dads already, and it's not even Father's Day. You know, following the instructions, things actually work better, because the people who design it know how it's supposed to go together, and how it's supposed to work, and we think we got a better idea, and we mess the whole thing up, and that's kind of the story of my mechanic, and you know, I love to try to fix things. Sometimes I get ahead of myself, and then some of the mechanics around get to make quite a bit of money off of uh, the things that I take in, because I messed it up, right, um, but we got to do things the way they're designed. And that's part of what, uh, Tim, what Paul is, is visiting to Timothy and uh, to get order. And so he's going to talk about order in the house. We, we saw a little bit about that with prayer even in chapter 2. And then now, I want to skip down as we start this. Have you ever heard, and I use this word every now and then, kelter. Kelter. You know, something's just not quite right. We say it's what? Out of Kelter. Constantly, something's just out of, and I I did a little research on that word, and it means to be in good order or balanced, right? I'm trying to find exact origins, and it's it's been around since the 1600s in our English language, and it's hard to find exactly. They've used it in all kinds of things from, uh, you know, um, from boating, you know, and navigating on the sea, to airplanes, to engineering, to all kinds of stuff. How come it is when something's wrong, we always talk about it being out of Kelter, but we never say when something is really going good that, hey, it looks Kelter? You know, how's it look? Kelter. Uh, so we'll say it looks out like it's a little out of Kelter. I don't understand that. But anyway, uh, but that's exactly what we're talking about here is keeping things in Kelter, in good order, in the family. And in the church family, okay? And that's why he lays down some of this right here. So I want to actually start in verse 14 and we'll back up, okay? Because he tells us why he wrote these. Paul, why did you write this? Well, he tells us, all right? Got your Bible ready? Okay, let's look at it. Verse 14, 1 Timothy chapter 3. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. So he was hoping to actually come and visit and help continue mentoring and instructing Timothy. But he says, verse 15, he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. So here's Paul, a great apostle, and he's trying to do the Lord's work here. He's been called, and he's not sure exactly what's going to happen. Neither are you. So I've got my plan, this is my intention, but God may have a different plan that he hasn't revealed to me yet, okay? And so he says, "But if I'm delayed, he says, "There's why I'm writing this, verse 15, "So that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And great and, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This is just so awesome, the way he lays this out here. And, And he tells us exactly why he wrote it. And he said part of it is order in the house, that you might know how to behave or how to conduct, how to order yourself in the house of God. Now, when he says house of God, it's not talking about a church building. The Greek word is oikos, and it literally means a family. So are you with me here? So he's saying, "This is how you need to order yourselves, conduct yourselves, behave yourselves in the family of god uh, every every one of the low, and there's probably several little gatherings of, of churches in Ephesus because you understand they didn't have big buildings like we have, they probably met in homes and they met in different places, they're probably meeting in people's houses. But everyone who got saved are you with me? Everyone who got saved that you find in the New Testament, they became part of the church of the living God. You're part of those that body of believers that even stretch back to Old Testament saints all the way to the last person who will ever be saved. We're part of that. Kingdom of God, okay? But everybody also connected themselves to a local gathering of believers. A local group. They're called the church. And in the Bible, the word church never refers to a building. It always refers to people. Amen? The word literally means in the Greek, the called out. We're God's called out people. We're called out of the kingdom of darkness, remember? And into his kingdom of light. And so as you're part of this, of these households, these local congregations, you are part of the whole thing of God's called out church. That's what he's saying here. How you behave yourself in the household, the family units, and meeting together as local churches. And he says that is the part of the church of the living God. Do you see that? The pillar, he says, and ground of the truth. What does that mean? Well, let's look at it. So here's God's order. And that is that we're all part of his household, his family, that's the local church. And what he's going to talk about in this chapter has to do with just like in the family... Everybody, are you with me? Everybody, I'm saying that because it doesn't always look like you're with me. In case you're wondering, it's just like, are you here? Yeah. Um, so that not every, not not everybody in in every family is is occupying the place where God really wants them to. So in the home and in the church home, God has roles, relationships, and responsibilities. All right. Everybody is equally valuable, equally important. What everyone does is equally important as well. It's just we don't all do the same thing. And there are some people that God holds responsible. Are you with me? We've already talked about a little bit in the family. That's part of the way God and Paul talks about the created order, the man was created first, then the woman, and all that. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean he even pointed out Eve sinned first, then, then Adam, but yet Paul in Romans blames the whole fall of mankind on who? Adam. Who did God hold responsible? Adam, so that's part of being the head, the man is the leader. That says God is holding you responsible. Men, husbands, God holds you responsible for the well-being of your wife and your family. Her holiness and her happiness, God says, you know, no matter what, on the day, I'm holding you responsible. Okay? So we understand that. And it's not that you have a more important role than the wife, mother. You just have a different role. They're equally important, equally valuable. Likewise, in the church family, there are different roles, different responsibilities. Everything that God has gifted, and listen to me now. Everything God has gifted and called you to do is just as important as what God has called and gifted someone else to do. It's just as important as, as what I do. And I love it when someone steps in here. Sometimes I don't look very... Maybe like they think I should. But um, they'll ask, who's the minister here? Who's the minister here? You know what I love to be able to do? As you guys are coming in like from Sunday school and everything, just say, here they are. Got a room full of them. Because we all have ministry here. We may have different roles and responsibilities, but equally important, all of it is equally important. They're just different. And uh, I only have a few spiritual gifts, and there's only a few things that I even do very well. So if you're counting on me, and like, you know, the old joke that Max always brings up, hey, what are we paying the preacher for, right? That is a joke, isn't it, Max? You, you are just joking when you say that. I, I, I've had all these years, I've just thought that. But anyway, yeah. But that's the thing, is that there's only so, you can, you can pay me to do a lot of stuff, I just won't do it very well. Well, because I'm not called and gifted, you are. And besides, they don't, they don't really pay me that much to tell you the truth. I, I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, so this is the, the, the order that God has. And he says, and it's in the household. And if it's going to work right, listen, if we're going to have things in Kelter, you need to get this right. And I'm going to give you some things about those who I'm going to hold responsible. And that's what this is about. Uh, but you'd understand that we're all part. Hey, we, we meet in this building but you know what? God's church is... All, you know, I've said this before. In Hartville, there, there's just one church. It meets in different buildings. And I love it to see our community coming together and work together like we should. Small towns, sometimes we can get a little territorial, can't we? And it's not right. And, and the enemy hinders a lot of the work because of that. It says it's the pillar and ground. Pillar and ground. The pillar is like a support. The ground is like the foundation. We are, listen, the church. Think about it. In this nation, in this world, it is the church of the living God. Those people who are living here who are... Followers of Christ who are the foundation and the support of the truth. The only truth that exists in this world. Without us, there's not going to be truth available to this world. We're not only the foundation of it. The world's not going to have it without us. Listen to me. Listen to me. The only visible representation of Jesus Christ in this world right now is you and I. And all the rest of the believers. And that's how he chose to do it. That's it. And we are the pillar, the, the foundation and the support of God's truth. If our world's going to receive truth, they're going to have to receive it through the church of the living God, through the word of God, working through us. So Paul, as he goes through this, it's amazing that the Bible doesn't give a how-to manual on the local church. You ever notice that? You know, it was Jesus and was sending out, the, he told them, you know, to go and share the gospel, but he didn't give like, now when you start churches, here's how you set it up. He kind of left us to hammer it out. And you see that through the book of Acts and into the letters that Paul wrote. And in this, when he's writing Timothy the first time that we have here, uh, by this time, there are really two offices that have emerged in the local church. And it's amazing that he doesn't give a job description or anything. He just gives the qualities of those who serve. Now, I have to admit, as I back up in this chapter and I read over this verse, I told you last week, it makes me tremble. Because on many of these things, I feel like I fall short. But then I'm reminded as I read the whole word of God that he's not looking for, for perfect people. God is not looking for perfect people. Because there, can I say it? There ain't none. <laughs> no perfect people. We only have a perfect God and Savior. He's not looking for perfect people, but people who will allow him to do a perfecting work in and through our lives. So all of it is God's grace and God's power coming through our lives for him to make us what he wants us to be. God gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. It's all because of his grace. It's only because of the grace of God that I can stand before you today. So here's the essence of godliness. He talks about without controversy in verse 16. Great is the mystery <coughs> excuse me, of godliness, of being godly. This mystery of godliness is, has to do with how it was once concealed in the Old Testament. It's revealed in the New Testament of salvation through Christ and the grace of God. But here is the mystery of godliness. It is becoming who God wants you to be. That's the essence of being godly. It's just letting God make you, not who you want to be and throw his name in there, but making you in your life, in your thoughts, in your attitude, in your actions, who he wants you to be. Him molding and shaping your life. And that's, that's as simple as that. So, anyway, as we get into this, this is the purpose statement. We're going to look at a couple of things. Because he says, first of all, he says in verse 1, this is a faithful saying. Evidently, people said that. Hey, if you want to be an overseer, a pastor, a bishop, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a difficult thing, but it's a good thing, okay? I'm glad it's a good thing. I'm glad the Bible says it's a good thing. Some of these words are thrown around a lot. Can I just cover this really quick? A lot of these words are thrown around pastor, elder, bishop. Preacher, knucklehead, I don't know, whatever. But um, So a lot of these actually refer to the same thing. The word elder is the Greek word presbyteros. It really means the mature. It doesn't mean necessarily old in age, but it, it, it means mature, spiritually mature. So if someone's gonna be, and these are leaders, okay? So you see in the home, God says I hold the husband responsible. You're the leader. That's what that means. In the church, everybody has equal importance, but there are some roles that I have and responsibility and these are people who are leaders which means they're also ones that I'm holding responsible all right so an elder is often used in that way it's someone mature and to be a leader you need to be mature spiritually right another word is pastor and the word pastor means you know what the word pastor means it literally means a shepherd that is God's flock and we are his under shepherds helping to steer and to guide and to feed the flock Um, Another word is episkopos, which is translated here, overseer or bishop. And that's literally what it means. One who sees over, one who has the oversight, one who is responsible. And so he uses the word episkopos here, bishop or overseer. But a lot of these all apply to Can I give you a verse where all three of these describe the same person? Can I do that? Are you ready for it? You're not going to miss it? All right, because not just Paul wrote about this. Peter wrote about it, and in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, here's what he says. He goes, the elders, see, there's elders. The elders who are among you, I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Hallelujah. Got to remember that glory that's going to be revealed. We're going to partake of that. Can you imagine? We're going to partake of it. Well, I think you'll be more excited that day than you even think you're going to be. That's out there, man. We got hope. We got got a future. All right. Then he says this. So elders, I'm going to encourage you. I'm also an elder. What does he tell them to do? Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Guess what that word shepherd could also be translated? Pastor. The word shepherd means pastor. So shepherding is pastoring. So basically saying elders, pastor the flock of God, which is among you, serving as, do you see the next word? Overseers. That's the word episcopos that we have here today. Bishop or overseer, serving as an overseer, not by compulsion, but willingly. That we do it, everything you do for God, you, He wants you to do willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, because there were some already abusing the position in those days, just like they do now. All right? So you see, elder, pastor, bishop all referring to the same person here, different aspects of that of that responsibility. Okay, so this brings us back to where we're at because he uses the word overseer. And so that's bishop, overseer, also refers to pastor. And um, so what, what is it? What is it about him? Well, it's amazing that he doesn't give a job description. He just gives qualities. And we can get job description from being leader, shepherd, those kind of things from the way the other words are used. And so, look at the look at the qualities that he gives. Now, um, actually, these are qualities we should all have, right? Men, can I get a witness from any of our men? Come on, men and women. All right, it's all there, but especially for a leader, especially for a leader, because uh, he says, first of all, uh, I'm not listing all these. I'm just going to run through them. He says that that. You know, none of us are perfect, but these are vital ingredients. And the very first thing he says is blameless. You gotta be blameless. Well, who feels like they're blameless, okay? Literally, what that word means is to be above reproach. And that we live our lives in such a way that there are people going to come after you, all right? especially leaders. And if they make false accusations, that you live in such a way that nobody will believe them. Amen? So people are going to make accusations and gossip about you. One of the best things you can do is go out and live publicly and in private in such a way that nobody will believe them. Be blameless. Pastors are a special target of Satan's attacks. I think so. The front lines bear the brunt of satanic opposition. The enemy knows that if the shepherd falls, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage and sheep may scatter and he can pick them off. I take that very seriously. This doesn't mean that he's never sinned. It just means he needs to take this serious. And if he doesn't, he's not qualified. And so he says that they must be, chapter 3, let me get back over there, blameless, Husband of one wife. And, you know, we've debated that and all that, you know, does that mean he can never have been divorced? Does it mean he's not a polygamist? And there are a couple of scriptural reasons that are valid for divorce. Most people don't fall under those. But anyway, it, it. and so what's he talking about? Literally what it says here is man of one woman. That's literally what it says in the original language. So, so you know, you can debate that. I mean, obviously, polygamy wasn't a big thing probably in that culture because the Ephesians, those men, they might marry a woman and then they would have a servant girl and then they would have the temple prostitute. They would have all these different women and they didn't marry but one of them and she was almost like a slave as well. That's the way the culture was. And, 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 and that's part of what Timothy's having to deal with. And the Jews, they, you know... After the Babylonian captivity, you never hear of that again as far as... So, so we don't know exactly except this, that he needs to be a one-woman man, all right? Because you want to complicate... your. Anyway, let's go ahead. And um, then it says, husband of one wife, temperate. The old King James says, vigilant. That word means... Are you following me? Okay. It means to be balanced and clear-headed that you've got a, your mind is in kelter with the word of god how about that then he says sober minded literally that means of a sound mind that means you have self control and are prudent sober minded is a result of being temperate temperate excuse me sober minded is a result of being temperate and it suggests wisdom and discretion, that he's well-disciplined. He knows how to order his priorities, temperate, sober-minded. Then it says of good behavior. NIV says, renders that respectable. And that's a good, good way to do it because it means well-mannered or honorable. To have things in good order. It's a result of being sober-minded. Being sober-minded is a result of being temperate. Then he says inhospitable. Now hospitable means that you love people and that you have an open heart and an open home. And I would say this, if a man really loves to preach but he can't stand people, you're going to have problems here. Okay? How many times said, Lord, I'd be such a great pastor if it wasn't for these people? And you say, Lord, we'd be such a great church if it wasn't for that pastor. It's all about people. People are who Jesus came and died for. And, and, and you maybe have a gift of teaching, but if you don't love people, you can't be a pastor. That's part of what he's saying here. It will not work. You might could teach a class somewhere and give lectures. God could use you. But if you don't have a love in your heart for people, and, and you know, and that's the thing. That's the thing is God does that, and it, it, it is hard because sometimes if you love a lot of people and, and you take it seriously, it, 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 you know, the shepherd can stress over the sheep, you know. <sighs> I could give you some stories here about how I've been different places and, you know, meeting people and stuff like that. There was even a time several years ago I felt like I needed to check out to see if God wanted me somewhere else. And, you know, one thing that God hit me with, besides really just evaluating some things and seeing kind of what the whole situation was really like. Um, but, you know, and, and God just saying, this is not what I want for you. Uh, is, is, is some of the, as, as some of the precious little ladies were coming out and talking to me, I thought, these are precious saints some of them I had met many years before. But I thought, they're not my ladies. <laughs> they're not my Lavelle and Jenny and Pauline. You know? It's like a connection, a family. And when you love a lot, you can be hurt a lot. Why does it C.S. Lewis said, there's no safe place unless you lock yourself away and then something dark and terrible begins to happen. You gotta risk love. And if you're gonna love, you're gonna be so blessed, but you do have the potential of being hurt. Okay? But hospitable, that's that's the thing about it. Is uh, the, the church doesn't need pastors who are aloof and unapproachable, you gotta love people. Then he says, able to teach. You've got to have the ability to handle the scriptures, relate its truth to others. This is the, really about the only thing that kind of separates the overseer, pastor uh, qualifications from that of the servant deacons uh, is this one right here. Although many deacons have the gift of teaching, but this is like a necessary thing that you have to be able to teach. You've got to have gifts of preaching and teaching. And here's the thing. You can't teach what you don't know. Huh? You can't teach what you've not learned. You know, you can't just get up here and expect, you know, I'm just going to get up and the Holy Ghost is just going to give me what to say, you know. The Holy Spirit brings it to your heart and mind what you've read and studied. I've never had the Holy Spirit bring a verse to my mind that I haven't read. Now, there's times he'll give me insights even as I'm preaching that I hadn't previously had. But he can work on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday as I'm in the study and praying and singing him along just like he works here. And so you can't say, you can't teach what you don't know. And so you've got to have study. So part of being able to teach is you've got to be willing to study. And if you don't like to study and read, you're going to have a hard time doing this part. Then he says not given to wine. Well, you know... We kind of get that, right? <laughs> uh, as big a problem as alcoholism is, and the pain and the problems and the expense and the tragedies, the broken homes, the, 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 the deaths, the tra- oh man, it's just it's horrible. But even in that day and in their culture, it was a little hard. It's actually a little harder to avoid than it is in ours. Did you know that? I mean, first of all, you know, grapes were a staple of nutrition and everything. How are you going to preserve them? Well, there's only a couple of ways you dry them out and make raisins out of them. Or you smash them and get the juice. But then with the juice, what are you going to do with it? You've got about a day or two and it's going to be bad. You can't freeze it. You can't can it. You can't do it. What are you going to do? What they did was many times they would boil this down into more of a concentrate. And they put it in these these containers made of animal skins. Okay, So they were expandable. And so basically it is going to decay. It's just, how do you control the decay? And in that world, with no refrigeration and no canning or anything, they had to come up with ways. That's how cheese was invented. Yeah, It's just kind of a controlled decay. And that's how this happened. That decay that you control uh, in a certain way, it produces fermentation. There's no way to avoid it. You know, like, there, there just isn't. There's no way that you just have juice that you keep preserved like we do today in that day. It doesn't happen. It's impossible, okay? So, um, you know, people joke and say Jesus turned water into wine and the Baptist turned it into grape juice. But anyway, uh, the thing that they did was they would take this concentrate and their water, they had trouble getting, you know, they didn't have wells like we have. They had trouble with pure drinking water. So many times they would take their water, they would take this concentrated, fermented juice that they preserved and they would pour it in there and mix it together so the alcohol content was negligible is that right and it purified the water see had antiseptic qualities that's why later on in chapter 5 Paul does tell Timothy don't drink just water mix a little wine in it don't take that wrong because he's basically saying you need to do what you could be in a teetotaler but in our sometimes that actually helps purify the water all right, so you just need to understand they lived in a world where it was almost impossible to avoid this in some way because there was no other way to preserve anything, there just wasn't. I'm sorry, you know, we try to make it, 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 it there just wasn't. And so, this is very important. You can't lead, you can't be trustworthy if you are the type of person that starts using this in the wrong way and you get intoxicated because when you get intoxicated you get higher you get drunk what you do is you open your mind and your will to the enemy i think you throw it in neutral and things that you would resist and stuff you give free access to the devil to come in and put thoughts and things in your mind and do things and torment you it is an it is an in it is an invitation in to the enemy to mess with your mind mess with your soul okay and so this has no place in our lives. This has no place in the ministry. How are you going to minister? How are you going to have wisdom? How are you going to oversee if you're like, you know, messed up? You can't. So, but in that culture, they really need to be reminded because you need to be careful, guys. Now, see, today you can live your life and not have to have it. It's, it should be easier now than it was then. So no leader could be a drunkard. Even in their world. So he says, you better watch this. Then he says, not violent. Literally, the word means not a giver of blows. Um, The NIV says, not pugnacious. And I'm like, that doesn't help me. What's that? You know? Literally, it means not hitting someone with with a blow. The old King James says, no striker. I'll never forget. When I started preaching when I was 15, and I can remember preaching at this little country church, Uh, uh, I better not even say where it is because we do a podcast and somebody would be like, hey, uh, you're talking about us. (laughs) You never know, do you? Well, he's we was in a Sunday school class, and a lot of times, I am 16 years old. I am preaching regularly at certain churches. And I sit in the adult class, which is in the sanctuary. And, you know, the style of teaching, just kind of like the teacher get up and say, all right, we all read a verse, you know. And uh, so-and-so will read that verse, read this verse, and said, well, you got any comment on that? Oh, no, I think it's self exploratory All right, let's move on. Uh, you know, but sometimes you just, when, when, and it's good to get comments and discussion, but if somebody's not really leading it, sometimes all we end up doing is pooling our ignorance. Right? Anyway, the whole discussion went that way. This gal said, well, you know, that just means that preachers aren't to have a union because it says no striker. And honestly believed it, that you're not supposed to strike. Anyway, but the strike here means pow. Isn't it significant that not being violent, not being violent, physically violent, follows not being drunk? Did you know that it's that way in, in Titus as well, when he, in Titus 1, seven, It also is significant that that, fo- that phrase follows not being drunk or addicted to wine. So not being violent, you gotta, you're going to lose your top, you're going to blow your temper, and you're going to get in scuffles. You're probably not going to be trusted to be an overseer. Then he says not greedy for money. Some manuscripts don't have this phrase in this spot. Uh, it's actually where it is. It's only one word in the Greek. It says not, and then this one word. And the old King James translates this one word, not greedy, of filthy lucre. Now, in the old days, everybody understood what that meant. Young days, filthy lucre, what is that? Literally, this is a compound Greek word that means filthy gain. Filthy gain. That means a dirty means of trying to gain, whether it's money or a position or whatever. Uh, It goes along with not covetous. Of course, you can covet more than just money. But that's what it is, greedy gain, that you're going to be in a position where you could exploit people. Huh? Do you see any of that happen in our world? Yeah, it does. Paul says people that pastors, ministers, overseers that do that aren't qualified if they're going to rip off the sheep. Just saying. No, he's just saying. God's just saying. Thus saith the Lord. Is that what God's saying? Thus says the Lord. Just saying. You know, kids say that, you know, just saying. God's saying. I'm saying it. Listen to it. Then it says, be gentle. but be, Don't be that way, but be gentle as opposed to being violent. Not quarrelsome. Not a contentious person who's always stirring up turmoil and trouble. If you're a gospel, you're just always stirring up trouble among people. You're you're not going to be able to be very successful. You're going to cause more problems than you solve. And then not covetous. Literally, that is one word in the original language. It means not a lover of silver. Uh, a lover of money. So if you're, if you're, if you're in love with money, you're going to have a hard time because <laughs> your focus is not on God. You have an idol and you're not going to, if you do it right, you're not going to get rich. So, alright, let's, let's fly on through this because he says also about a godly family because he says, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? He's not saying that the pastor has to be married and have children. Paul himself was single, but if he does have it, he needs to rule or manage now that word literally means to stand before that he's just like any other husband he stands before his family his own household uh, how well he can he can be the spiritual leader there because really you know what who you really are isn't who you are who, when you're here it's who you are when you're home that's who you really are and he's saying you can't be one person there and one person at home you need to stand before and to stand before doesn't mean just that you manage your rule it means God holds you accountable. And so he said that's you know if there's problems there there's problems everywhere and you're not going to be able to minister to everybody. It's not that your family always has to turn out perfect but how do you stand before them? Then he says not a novice. Literally that word means not newly planted. That refers to spiritual maturity, not years and age. The position and responsibility could cause some to be lifted up in pride. Which is exactly what happened to the devil and led to his fall. And that's why he points that out there. And then there's an issue of testimony. Because it says more you must have a good testimony among those who are outside. That's outside the church. If everybody in the community thinks he's a jerk or sees him be dishonest or things like that, they're not going to give any credibility to the message that he preaches. Right now, true, we're going to get persecuted because of our faith in Christ, but many are persecuted just because they're a jerk. I know, I know you're totally unfamiliar with a pastor being that way, you know, but basically, that's part of what he said you got to have a good testimony, those who are on the outside, all right? Okay, so that's all part of that. Then that's the pastor, and I I remember I'm telling you, this is going to go fast because he says that then. Uh, Then he says, likewise, deacons, likewise. That means in the same manner, everything there applies here, likewise. Same thing, okay? So by the time he wrote this, uh, this office had developed in the church. You don't really find it being appointed. You just find it happening. The word deacon means servant. So when he says those who serve as deacons, those who serve as servants. But it seems like it had become an office that he's pointing out here by this time. Uh, It means to minister, to serve. A lot of people feel like this may have started in Acts chapter 6 whenever they had needs of the people and the apostles were trying to teach and to preach and to pray and they couldn't take care of the needs of all the widows. They appointed seven to kind of oversee that and to make sure people's needs were met. It seems like they aren't called deacons there but that may be where it started. But by this time... Paul is pointing out something here, and he gives the qualities uh, for them, that they be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, a lot of the same things. Uh, reverent dignity, and not, not somebody who gossips, because you know whats there, there, there are people who are, are working with the people, ministering to the people. They're going to hear a lot of stuff and know a lot of stuff about the people in the congregation. And if you gossip about them, you kind of undo the work that you've done. And same thing about not giving to much wine, not greedy for money, uh, filthy lucre again. And, and see, here's the thing, that probably with the way their works described, they're gonna probably be handling a lot of money. They're probably gonna be helping take care of needs of the people. So they're gonna be handling money and if they can't be entrusted with that, then they're not gonna be able to serve. Then it says holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And the mystery of the faith, that is that, is that whole thing of, of the gospel, the gospel. It was a mystery in the Old Testament and the whole way of salvation Salvation by faith has been revealed, and he still calls it the mystery of faith, the mystery of godliness, that they hold it in a pure conscience, that they're trying to live a godly life, a life of integrity. Then he says that they're also to be tested, um, that they're to be um, tested um, and, and, and so forth and so on, and, and let them serve as servants. That's where he says serve as servants, being found blameless, uh, that, uh, that they're found blameless. So they're, they're tested. You, know, you try to see how you handle this stuff, and then good. All right. Then he says, likewise, do you see that? Verse 11, their wives, likewise. So he's saying in the same way. Now, there's a little question here of how this is interpreted because it very well could refer to their wives. Is his wife going to create a problem? Because she's obviously going to know a lot of very sensitive issues going on among the people. She can make him or break him. But the word here is a word that could be translated wives. Literally, it just says this, likewise, the women, be reverent. That's what it says in the Greek. Likewise, in the same way, the women. You can translate it as wife, but it just is women. Uh, Many people believe that whether it was their wives or whether it was other women, that there were women who had also been set apart in a prominent role of serving and ministering in the congregation. And it makes sense that because of a lot of women's needs that you would need women to administrate that. Okay, makes a lot of sense. So it literally says, women, likewise, the women. Could be their wives, could be other In fact, we have a little, I could document several. Let me just give you one here in Romans 16. Paul's wrapping it up, and he says in verse 1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Synchria. That word translated servant is the exact same word translated deacon in the Greek. Literally in a feminine form. So you could translate it deaconess if you wanted to. You could. All right? She's a servant at churches church of Syncrium. Now, see if this is someone, because you have to interpret a little, the, every passage with the whole, that, that she probably wasn't someone that just sat in a corner, uh, covered up, being quiet all the time because she had a prominent role of ministry, right? So look, even in Paul's day, he says that you may receive her. So he's telling the whole church or all those churches in Rome that when she comes, you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Of all the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. So basically, she's in charge. You assist her. And says, For indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself. Also, So Paul gives testimony about Phoebe and about the prominent ministry that she had. You also say, hear the same thing about Priscilla and uh, her husband Aquila and things like that. There's still order in the home. God says, ultimately, I'm holding the man responsible. Ultimately, I'm holding the overseer responsible. But there are many of those who have leadership and serving areas. And so just throwing that out there because we need and we have, thank God, many women ministering to the needs of people in a church. And then so he goes on to say that um, uh, also come back to servants, uh, these deacons. So he mentions the women. And he says, then let deacons be husband of one wife, one woman man, ruling their household. The same thing about the home. And then he says those who have served well obtain a good standing and great boldness in the faith. There's a reward to this, y'all. And he said this is a lot of responsibility and a lot for you to do, but those who serve as deacons and you're ministering to the needs of people and and you're, you're part of the leadership of the local church, it's tough, but keep in mind there's a great reward. As Jesus taught us, those who humble themselves the most will be exalted the most in the world. To come. Do we realize that most of the well-known celebrity this and that even among the Christian world aren't going to be that popular over there and it'll be people that you never knew their names that Jesus will say hey come up front. And that's what he's pointing out here, that those who serve in the most sincere way to the glory of God will be first in the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of times, these people receive no recognition or appreciation here uh, or outside the church. God says, I don't miss it. And listen, the ministry of a lot of our deacons and deaconesses, our men in our church, listen, there, there's times that, if it, you know, that they, they, they go to a lot of trouble just to help me seem okay, okay? Right? If it was not for you guys, I'd really look bad. I figure i guess get at least one amen from at least over here. You know? And you get very little credit for, for, for what you do and for being there. And so this is part of the foundation of order in the house. Okay? This is where it starts. Now let's wrap it up because he doesn't stop there. All of this is about the gospel. All of this is being a pillar in the ground of the truth. All of this is so that we function as a household in Kelter. Listen. If we're out of kelter with our order, it's going to be hard to accomplish the mission. The household of God, pillar and ground of the truth. Great is the mystery of godliness. He talks about the gospel. So that's why we're here for is sharing and standing for God's truth. We're not going to be able to do that effectively if we're dysfunctional as a family. So let's start getting it right. I I can't say I always got everything right. Can't say you do, but let's work on it, amen? And let's look at these qualities, and let's take them serious, and God help us. You pray for me, I pray for you. Paul says, as I've already read, why he wrote it in verse 14, and he said, if I'm delayed, that you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Someone said right here in verse 15 is the heart of the church's mission, that we're the pillar and ground of the truth. And then in verse 16 is the heart of the church's message, the, God, the, the message of the gospel. Verse 16, did you get that? Great is the mystery of godliness, that thing that was concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament, the gospel. Now, verse 16, I want you to know as we wrap up, was probably a very well-known creed, confession, or hymn that they used. It's a little bit poetic, even in the original. Notice the contrast in the poetry. It talks about that God was man of flesh in the flesh, justified in the spirit. You have a contrast between flesh and spirit. You have contrast between obscene by uh, angels, of angels and men. You have a contrast or, or uh, between uh, angels and men. It says preached among the nations, among the men. Uh, ethnos is the word, the nations, the Gentiles. And then between this world and glory. You have those contrasts right here as he gives this to us. Look at this. This is probably something that they used because it's about Jesus. He appeared in the flesh, manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, witnessed by angels, preached among the nations, the Gentiles, the ethnos, Believed on in the world and then received up in the glory. Jesus came in the flesh, was vindicated. That means justified or declared righteous in the spirit. He not only died on the cross, but was raised by the power of the spirit. And that right there proved that he's who he said he was. Vindicated in the spirit by the power of that. Witness of the spirit, his resurrection. Seen by angels, they were witnesses. Appeared various times, witnessing including his birth and his resurrection. And he was proclaimed among the nation before he ascended. He commissioned us to take this gospel to every nook and cranny in the world. Every nation, every ethnos, same word. And he was believed on in the world. The gospel at that time was being preached and received in the world and still is. And in Acts chapter 1, 9, we saw that there was witnesses to him being received up into glory. He's talking about the gospel. This is what it's all about. This is why we need structure. This is why we need to take our lives serious. This is why we need to try to live blameless and be a witness. It's because of the gospel, the only hope anybody has for eternity. In six short stanzas, this hymn summarizes, God became man, died for our sins, triumphed over death, was honored by angels, feared by demons, ascended into heaven. This message was preached all over the world and many believed and were saved. It's the heart of the message. It's our mission to proclaim this. That's what all this is about, folks. It was said that there was once an old church in England that had a sign in the front of the building that read, We preach Christ crucified. After time, ivy began to grow up, obscuring the last word. and It just said, we preach Christ. More time went by and the ivy continued to grow and no one trimmed it. And finally, the motto just read, we preach. Ultimately, the ivy covered the entire sign and by that time, the church had died. Such is the fate of any church that fails to carry out his mission to the world. We preach Christ crucified and risen again and soon to return. Pray with me, Father.